Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new story from our free online publication, Etched Onyx. Please join me and co-host, Melissa Collings, after the reading, when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. The Story Discovery Podcast is sponsored by Scrivener, the go-to app for writers of all kinds, used every day by best-selling novelists, screenwriters, nonfiction writers, and more. Think of Scrivener as the Swiss Army knife of writing apps. You can use just the parts you need, like the distraction-free writing view, or you can break out all the tools to plan, organize, research, and create your work. When you're done, you can easily export to multiple document, manuscript, and ebook formats. Our listeners get a 20% discount by using the coupon code Story Discovery at checkout. You can learn more at their website, literatureandlatte.com, or just type Scrivener into your search engine. Give Scrivener a try, you won't regret it. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All stories are copyright 2021, all rights reserved. Today's story is The Caregiver, written by Kendall Klim and narrated by Melissa Collings. Settle in and enjoy. The Caregiver by Kendall Clem. Kneeling on a boat cushion in the middle of the garden, Patrice seizes the bottom end of a butternut squash. Like a chiropractor adjusting a patient's neck, she twists and pulls. When her method fails, she grabs the vine. Prickly spines dig into her slender fingers as she jerks the squash with her other hand. When the butternut breaks free, she drops it and rubs her hand. Normally she wears garden gloves, but not today. It's too hot, unusually so for September in Connecticut. Ever since she turned 45, both heat and cold seem to bother her more. Patrice places the tawny, vase-shaped vegetable in a supermarket bag. With a clean cloth she keeps in her hip pocket, she wipes the condensation from her eyeglasses and inspects the rest of the patch. Two ready to pick and one still immature, probably because of the drought. Glimpsing the shadow of a large bird passing over the back lawn, she looks up to spot a hawk. The bird disappears behind a towering catulpa, its bean pods swinging in the breeze. She grabs the other ripe butternut, reaches for the pruning shears, and cuts its cord-like vine. The squash rolls into her hands, and the raptor returns and utters a cry. Taking another look at the immature squash, she notices an indentation along its flared bottom and thinks of a beat-up trumpet her 85-year-old mother keeps on her mantle. She decides to let the vegetable ripen. Gathering her garden tools and the bag of squash, she hurries into the house to check the oven. She has two hours to finish making her mother's favorite, roast turkey and gravy, baked butternut squash, and garden salad with fresh plum tomatoes. Added into her estimate are five minutes to pack up the food and another ten to reach the three-story Queen Anne Victorian her mother will never give up. Mother and daughter sat at the same round table in the same house Patrice lived in from the time she was released from the preemie ward until she left home for college. It's been a decade since Jim left her for a bigger woman, 
one who could produce babies, and two years since her father died in his sleep. This Sunday, Patrice has gone all out to get her mother in a good mood for a serious talk. Despite the heat spell, her mother wears a sage-green, buttonless wool jacket, sleeves dangling from the shoulders in a style reminiscent of the 1950s. Insistent upon being addressed by strangers as Mrs. Ruby Trask, Patrice's mother lives by a strict schedule. Every night at 8.45, she douses her face with regenerative cream, the same brand she's used since the 1980s. Then she goes to bed. At 6.45 a.m., after completing her morning ablutions, she organizes her long, once-blonde hair into a tight bun on the back of her head. Thanks to an elliptical bicycle she rides five times a week for ten-minute intervals, Ruby's legs remain svelte and fit. Other than a couple of bruises hidden beneath her knee-length skirt, she shows no sign that she fell three times last month. How's the turkey? asks Patrice. It's excellent, but if I had known that's what you were making, I'd have given you my recipe for gravy. Patrice lets out a sigh. I followed your recipe, filed under the G's in your Rolodex. How much flour did you use? A quarter of a cup, just like the recipe says. Did you use Queen Guinevere? What are you talking about? Ruby folds her arms. Get with it, dear. Queen Guinevere has less gluten than your normal flour. Gravy ends up smoother. Exclusive at the King Arthur store in White River Junction. If you have time, maybe we can get up to Vermont before the weather turns. King Arthur has everything you could want. Exclusive flowers, unusual extracts, all kinds of things for the kitchen. Let's do it. I'll work it into my schedule. But you know, Mom, you've brought up an important point. I wish I could spend more time with you, but with my job, I can't give you anywhere near as much as you deserve. As Patrice speaks, Ruby's expression grows tense, her pursed-lipped frown forming fan-shaped wrinkles across her mouth. When mother and daughter lock eyes, Ruby pushes her chair backward, its legs screeching along the polished beechwood floor. After three attempts, during which she swings her body forward and back, she stands up. I'm going to the bathroom now, by myself, with no need for a cane, walker, wheelchair, or nurse. And when I return, I'd like for us to change the subject. I have no intention of spending your father's hard-earned pension on a maid or servant or whatever they call them now, in case that's what you're leading up to. And, if I know you, it most certainly is. And next time, if you have something to say, just say it. Don't butter me up with food which, I must admit, was delicious, except for the gravy. Patrice bows her head. When the room goes silent, her gaze rises to her mother's diminished figure. The senescent curvature of her spine like a comma without a sentence. In silence, Ruby is weak. That's why she likes to get upset. When her body rebels against her wishes, she relies on adrenaline born out of agitation. 
Of course, the theory belongs to Patrice and Patrice alone, for getting Ruby Trask to go to the doctor is virtually impossible. The urge to scream makes Patrice's mouth vibrate. When she opens it, nothing comes out. Ruby walks slowly toward the bathroom, her hands trembling by her sides. When she speaks, there's a slight tremor in her voice. Don't beat around the bush. I didn't raise you to be that way. In the midst of the shame Patrice feels for not being forthright, she realizes that she shares her mother's convictions. Just last week, when an English major came into the dean's office to insinuate that his 21st century lit professor assigned too much reading, Patrice said, in her best assistant dean's voice, Spell out your complaint. You didn't complete three semesters of rhetoric and composition not to know how to state an argument. The student ended up admitting his complaint was weak. Patrice looks up to her mother, no matter how much the woman gets on her nerves. Ruby Trask is intelligent, brutally honest, and unyielding with her ideals. She's as elegant and salty a New Englander as you'll find in the 21st century. Even the tremor in her voice, more frequent as time passes, is stylish in a Catherine Hepburn sort of way. Adrenaline, or some other hold-up power, makes her appear decades younger when she speaks. Nine months away from her 46th birthday, Patrice suddenly feels old. Her stomach makes an obscene sound, and she frowns. Maybe the gravy wasn't so good after all. While her mother takes her time in the bathroom, Patrice considers wrapping up the leftovers and leaving the house, aborting her plan and heading home. It was presumptuous to line up three caregiver candidates and invite them to her mother's, especially on a Sunday afternoon. The first should arrive in less than half an hour. She tries to imagine the look on her mother's face when she tells her who's coming and why. The thought makes her shudder. She stands and walks to the kitchen. When she casts her eyes on a leftover turkey leg lying in its drippings, she pictures her mother falling, calling out to an empty house, and dying in a pool of blood. You'd like that, wouldn't you? She says to an empty room. A nice dramatic exit. Should have been a soap opera star instead of getting married and having a kid so late in life. Despite the love Patrice feels for her mother, Along with the love she knows her mother feels for her, the two have never been close. She used to put the blame on the generation gap, but now she's not so sure. Despite Ruby's calculable behavior, she sometimes has moments of unpredictability. It's as if her personality has a safety catch. Someone gets too close, and she does something weird to establish distance. For instance, she had never liked indoor plants. Then, a couple of months ago, when she had the flu, she gained a sudden interest. Lying in bed with a hot water bottle by her feet, she spent two days reading home and garden catalogs while Patrice waited on her. A couple days later, a big, barrel-shaped blob full of spines was delivered to the house. She put it by her bed and told her daughter to go home. Now she loves cactus and can't wait to buy more. Every time she gets a new acquisition, she places it by an expensive antique she doesn't want anyone to touch. Patrice's thoughts shift back to more than 30 years ago, when she came home from day camp to find her mother gone. Ruby's disappearance lasted only a few days, during which father and daughter were well prepared for, 
thanks to Mother's carefully labeled homemade meals stacked in the freezer, along with a calendar and heating instructions taped to the refrigerator. Never was there an explanation for where Ruby had gone, or why she had left so suddenly, and Patrice was forbidden to ask. Her father had said, It has nothing to do with you. We're not getting a divorce, so there's no need to worry. Patrice leaves the kitchen, walks past the bathroom, and takes a seat on the peach candy-tuft sofa. She cradles a pillow and thinks of Grindel, the Airedale her mother got rid of, after it tore up a bolster from the couch in the library. Ruby returns, red lipstick reapplied with precision. She sits in a straight-back walnut side chair, the same seat she had taken to inspect her only child's report cards, which were often quite disappointing. Patrice leans forward and reaches a hand toward her mother. I didn't come here to argue, but if you want direct, that's what you'll get. Last Christmas, you presented me with a piece of paper saying you want to die in this house, not at the hospital or anywhere else. I took that statement seriously, so much so that I helped you get a DNR order from the doctor, which means that when you stop breathing in this three-story tribute to yesteryear, the paramedics are obliged to refrain from bringing you back to life. Now that I have power of attorney, it's my responsibility to make sure you're taken care of. Ruby slides her tongue across her teeth, removing a splotch of lipstick from her central incisors. You don't need to rehash our Christmas discussion. I may be ancient, but I still have my memory. And I can take care of myself. As far as I'm concerned, says Patrice, when you fall three times in a period of thirty days, you cannot take care of yourself. So what are you saying? I'm saying that you told me a few minutes ago not to beat around the bush. So here's the scoop. I've taken advantage of my position at the college to find a student caregiver. I'm the one who's paying with my own money, so don't talk to me about expenses. I've narrowed it down to three candidates. All with high grades and no criminal record or university infractions. The first should be here in 15 minutes for an interview. Your job is to pick one, even if you like none of them. I happen to know each of these hardworking students, so don't give me a look that says, you're going to let a stranger rob me out of house and home? These are good kids studying a variety of subjects, from museum studies to music. The position will offer hands-on experience as well as college credit. As a former music teacher, you've always advocated for experiential learning, so you should be all for it. Ruby clears her throat. Well then, I guess there's nothing left to say. The queen has spoken. For the next ten minutes, mother and daughter sit in silence. Neither looks at the other. In the hall behind the parlor, the Swedish Mora clock passes the time with its metallic ticking. When the tall and stately antique utters its two-note chime, Patrice recalls her mother's last fall. To wind up a mora, you open the lower door and pull a metal lever, releasing the upper door to the clock face. Failing to realize her strength, Ruby pulled the lever hard enough to cause the clock to tip. Though she caught the mora and righted it, the sudden burst of movement upset her balance, 
and she crashed to the floor. Patrice gets teary-eyed every time she envisions her mother splayed across the floor, maimed by Scandinavian design. As it is, she lay there for hours before a neighbor found her and called 911. I counted the seconds and minutes, she had said. Then I closed my eyes and traced my grandmother's journey from Stockholm to Stonington. How she'd managed to bring such a bulky item into a crowded boat, I'll never know. How Ruby managed to fall without breaking a hip or anything else, Patrice will never know. But she's more than thankful. Her friends have suggested her mother go into assisted living. If things don't work out with the caregiver, Patrice doesn't know what she'll do. The first two candidates, both women, don't make it past five minutes before Ruby dismisses them. All that's left is Drift Micklesby, tall and slender, with thick golden eyebrows like miniature crescent moons pasted across his forehead. He wears a plain white button-down shirt and a pair of jeans. A museum studies major in his junior year, Drift is the only candidate who took off his shoes when entering the house. When he introduces himself, he refers to Ruby as Mrs. Trask. I know my first name sounds a bit strange, he says, but it makes sense. If you refer to the 14th century definition of the word drift, which means a being driven, someone with great motivation. Ruby raises her eyebrows and nods. Very interesting. Now, why don't you take a seat? Patrice escorts him to a ladder-back chair between the couch and coffee table. When he sets, he turns to face an 18th-century German Rococo wine cooler designed in the shape of a stork. Quite a conversation piece, he says. My name, that is. Holding Drift's resume, Patrice begins to read out loud, starting with his experience nursing his grandmother for two years before she died. Ruby interrupts. What are your aspirations at the university? I'm mostly interested in acquisitions. I want to curate at a museum. Art and history combo, not in a big city. Ruby nods. Who irons your shirts? Excuse me? Patrice turns to Drift. You don't need to answer that or any other inappropriate question, Despite Mrs. Trask's lucidity at 85, she's never understood the concept of personal space, though I'm sure she meant no offense. Drift relaxes his posture. None taken, I assure you. It's amazing, says Ruby, how a daughter can refer to her mother in the third person right in front of her and fail to understand that she herself has said something offensive. Sorry, Mom, but this time Drift interrupts. Nobody irons my shirts. I can tell, says Ruby. But if you're going to work for me, and I'd very much like it if you would, you'll need to dress more formally. Pressed shirt, dressed pants, and a tie. Is that understood? Drift nods while Patrice shakes her head. Mom, he hasn't even accepted the job yet. Well, if someone would let me finish offering it, maybe he would. 
Ruby turns to Drift. Bring over a few shirts, and I'll be glad to iron them. Despite my daughter's prognostications of dementia, paralysis, and God knows what else, I am still fully capable of doing a little work. It gives me energy and a sense of purpose. By the way, the person who will pay you is I, not that sour-faced woman sitting on the couch shaking her head. That's $15 an hour for six hours a day, three days a week. We can agree on a settled day and time for you to receive remuneration. I only deal in cash. On a regular basis, you'll escort me to the supermarket, wind the clocks, cook food, wash dishes, pick me up, if I fall, and tell me what it's like to be in college in the 21st century. Any odd jobs around the house you should be open to complete, and that includes washing windows. I like to be able to see out, especially if there's snow or freezing rain. Bring a pair of old clothes you can change into for tasks that make you dirty. You'll shower in the bathroom in the basement. We can work around your schedule in terms of specific hours. Take it or leave it. Before Drift can respond, Patrice suggests he think it over and offers to escort him to the door. Just as she begins to say something about her mother's personality, he walks to the mantel and stands before the beat-up trumpet. This looks like it has a story. I used to play it when I was in a band, says Ruby, her tone light and almost girlish. Back in the early 50s, when I was a lot younger than you. Drift says he appreciates vintage music, and Ruby tells him she toured with a five-piece band when she was only 17. I'm not sure how good I was, but dating the band leader did help with being hired. We were supposed to marry, but he got this other girl pregnant. So that was that. You never told me says Patrice. I never told you a lot of things, says Ruby. On his way out of the room, Drift trips on the edge of a large antique rug. Instead of falling, he catches himself in a huddled position, his right hand on his stomach. Sorry about that. I guess I was a little careless. The rug, says Ruby, will be your first task. That is, if you take the job. Drift cocks his head sideways. Oh, I'll take it. Don't worry about that. Are you sure? Asks Patrice. Drift nods, and Ruby winks back at him. I've got some adhesive in the basement, she says. But you'll have to be very careful. This is one of my most prized possessions, an antique from Persia. What you're standing on is a hunting scene in which the female aristocracy perform tasks we normally associate with men. Drift smiles. Such scenes were first depicted around 500 BCE, he says. Paziric rugs, the ones with the hunting scenes, are nowhere near as old but definitely worth preserving. He asks how to get to the basement, but Ruby says it can wait. Drift gazes at the scene in which a slender woman wearing an azure headdress aims a golden bow and arrow at a leaping deer. 
she almost got me, he says. By the end of the second week of October, Ruby convinces Drift to drive her antique Mercedes to the King Arthur Baking Company in White River Junction, Vermont. The two plan to leave at 6 a.m. sharp and return in time for a late dinner, already prepared and waiting to be heated. Ruby tells Patrice of their itinerary and says she can have Sunday off from seeing her mother. I said I'd take you there, says Patrice. Now you don't have to. Mom, don't you think you're overdoing it with Drift? Don't you think, dear daughter, that you're acting like an overprotective mother? Patrice insists on accompanying the two, and Ruby concedes without argument. Despite Drift's age, 27 according to his student file info, he drives like a grandmother. Never missing a turn signal, he keeps to the speed limit. On the interstate, he remains in the right lane and maintains a three-car distance from the vehicle in front. If someone tailgates, he takes his foot off the accelerator and lets them pass. He uses both hands on the wheel and never takes his eyes off the road, even while he's talking. Before they reach the Massachusetts line, Patrice learns about an altercation he and her mother had at the stop and shop. Apparently, someone tried to push in front of Ruby at the deli counter, and Drift intervened. After that, Ruby started calling him Lancelot. Patrice utters a groan and takes a deep breath. Then she peeks in the cooler setting on the floor of the back seat. Neatly wrapped in waxed paper and fold-over sandwich bags are three watercress and farmer cheese sandwiches on marble rye, along with a bag of seedless green grapes. She's never liked watercress, and farmer's cheese makes her gag, unless she has ample liquids to wash it down. She thought her mother knew this. When they stop for gas, Patrice buys a chicken sandwich and slips it in the cooler, while her mother sleeps and Drift fills the tank. Five minutes before they reach their destination, Drift starts humming Chattanooga Choo Choo. Ruby opens her eyes and joins him. The trio enters King Arthur with its exposed wooden beams and plethora of wicker baskets. The whole way up here, I pictured a mock castle, not this, says Drift. Most shoppers make their purchases online, says Patrice. They don't see the store, nor do they care how it looks. Ruby clears her throat. I'll have you know that King Arthur is a major tourist destination. Just look at the crowd. In the parking lot, I saw cars from six different states. People care very much about this place. In the flower section, Ruby fails to find Queen Guinevere, even with the help of her two companions. She signals a bored-looking 20-something who says the brand was discontinued in 2015. Ruby rolls her eyes. I guess people didn't want to spend a lot of money on a bag of flour, says the clerk, caressing her green-tipped pigtails. Before Ruby can respond, the clerk rushes to the opposite end of the store. In the midst of choosing a substitute flower, Ruby starts to shiver. She puts her hand on Drift's arm. Lancelot, may I trouble you to fetch my green wool? Drift takes a bow. Of course, my dear Guinevere. You know the one. I do. And all I can say is that once you put on your tippy hedron special... You'll be the talk of the town. 
Ruby chuckles. Just as long as we don't get attacked by birds. The door chimes as Drift steps outside. Patrice glares at her mother. What are you two blathering about? He thinks that when I wear my green wool, I resemble the actress who played Melanie Daniels in Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. That I doubt, but he's right about the jacket, a replica of the one worn in the movie by Tippi Hedren. I had it custom-made the year your father died. Been in the closet until you saw me wear it for our special turkey dinner. Patrice lets out a sigh. Well, aren't you just full of surprises? A hurried customer passes by, and Ruby leans on the edge of a wooden shelf. Slightly out of breath, she takes Patrice's arm, and they head to the flavorings section. When mother says she can't read the small print, daughter takes off her glasses and lists the ingredients. After selecting extracts, they check out. Drift searches his phone for a picnic spot and suggests a park on the Connecticut River. Mother and daughter agree. Drift talks about his grandmother during the short drive to the park. She was a little like Ruby, he says. The weather is unseasonably warm and partly sunny. With a picnic table just a few feet from their parking space, Drift has little trouble helping Ruby to her seat. During the meal, she speaks infrequently. When everyone is finished, she asks for a chance to rest her eyes. Drift sets with her, while Patrice strolls to the edge of the river, which is considerably narrower this far north. Despite the time of year, the grass is still green, and some of the leaves on the maples have yet to change color. Patrice bends down, dipping her hand into the water. Not that cold. A group of kayakers passes by, and one of them waves. She nods without looking. Across the river in New Hampshire, she notices what looks like a field of pumpkins. For some reason, she can't focus, but she sees something big and orange on the ground. She remembers the time she went trick-or-treating in a bright orange UNICEF box, a costume her father had constructed out of cardboard. The two painted it together. She wonders what her father would think of Drift. Not the jealous type, he never seemed to mind when her mother swooned over some movie star or musician, though he never indulged in analogous behavior. Patrice reaches to adjust her glasses and realizes she's not wearing them. As she hurries back to the car, she sees the outline of Drift helping her mother into the passenger seat. A sudden breeze rustles Patrice's bangs, and she shudders. After commenting on her forgetfulness, she searches the car while Drift calls King Arthur. I don't mean to sound nasty, says Ruby, but how could you walk around without seeing and not notice until now? That's a good question, says Patrice, and I really don't know the answer. Today has been strange right from the start. Before Ruby can respond, Drift says her glasses were found and will be waiting at checkout. On their way back to King Arthur, Drift's driving becomes erratic. Instead of easing the car to a stoplight, he slams the brakes. He apologizes several times, and both mother and daughter say it's all right. Barely a block past the light, Patrice notices Drift leaning forward, his upper body hunched over the steering wheel. Are you in pain? He stops the car. I'm really sorry, but my stomach is acting up. You think it was the sandwich? asks Ruby. No, it's something else. 
I've had it before, but not like this. We need to go to the ER, says Patrice. I can take us. No, you can't, says Ruby. Not without glasses. This is my car, and I will do the driving. With a bit of a struggle, Patrice helps drift into the back and her mother into the driver's seat. You're pretty strong, says Drift, his voice weak and tremulous. She certainly is, says Ruby, especially for her size. Now, I don't want either of you to talk. I need to concentrate, and Drift, you need to conserve your energy. Unlike Drift, Ruby drives more like a teenager, exceeding the speed limit and changing lanes to pass other cars. Patrice has never seen her mother drive so fast. Drift staggers into the ER, Patrice using all her strength to keep him upright. Ruby walks slowly behind. Despite questions about where it hurts, Drift remains vague. Stomach and abdomen, he says, refusing to elaborate. A minute later, when he lets out a scream that causes a toddler to start screeching, a nurse comes with a wheelchair and rushes him down the hall. The hospital is small, and only a handful of people populate the waiting room. Mother and daughter sit silently as a janitor mops the floor, ammonia and vinegar permeating the air. Every so often, a loud buzzer rouses the person at the front desk. She picks up a receiver, utters a few lazy words, and then returns to a state of repose. People come and go. A bearded man with a plethora of tattoos puts Halloween decorations on the windowsill. Ruby glares at the plastic pumpkins, paper witches, and spongy ghosts. Tattoo Man walks up to a teenage girl sitting alone with her arm wrapped in a bloody rag and asks her to move to a different seat. When she's out of the way, he sprays fake cobwebs between the chairs and the wall. Patrice shakes her head and Ruby invites the girl to sit next to her. The girl moves to the opposite end of the waiting room. Patrice rummages through her purse, pulls out a pack of gum, and offers her mother a stick. Both chew for a while before anyone speaks. There are things you know about Drift that you haven't told me, says Patrice. Keep your voice down, whispers Ruby. He asked me not to say anything, so I'm not going to. I happen to be someone who honors people's wishes. Patrice stands up and folds her arms. I know you do, Mom. But isn't this taking it a little far? I mean, he could have died with his little secret or whatever it is you're not telling me. And speaking of secrets, what's with the two of you? If I didn't know better, I'd think you've fallen for a college kid. Sit down. That, dear daughter, was low, even for you. Patrice clunks into her chair. I'm sorry. I guess the day has finally gotten to me. Ruby tells Patrice that Drift was in a car accident a year ago. He had an operation that made him impotent. His girlfriend left when she found out. And he's learned to look at life differently. In addition to being his employer, I'm his friend. That's it. Sure, I find him attractive, and he finds me fun to talk to. Nothing wrong with that. No, I guess not. But what about his health? 
Sometimes he has pains in various parts of his body, but they usually pass. I have no idea what's going on now, so the last thing I need is for you to come after me. I didn't mean to, but I wish you had filled me in a little sooner. I mean, what was I supposed to think with you calling him Lancelot and him calling you Guinevere? You can think what you want. I really don't care. Patrice slaps her hands on her lap. Don't be like that. Don't tell me how to be. When I did that to you growing up, you didn't like it, and I stopped. Well, I don't like it either. An elderly man sitting on the opposite end of the room clears his throat loudly, and mother and daughter stop talking. A few minutes go by, and a heavyset woman in scrubs appears. She asks if Patrice is Drift's mother. Who are you? asks Ruby. I'm Dr. Coolidge, the attending physician. Ruby introduces herself and tells the doctor that Drift is an unmarried orphan with no children. His only living relative died a year ago. My daughter and I are as close to family as you're going to get, so whatever you have to say, say it. The doctor says Drift has a case of acute appendicitis. I just wanted to touch base before the procedure. We'll let you know as soon as we're finished. When the doctor leaves, Patrice offers to pick up dinner. I appreciate it, but no thanks. If it were you on the operating table, I'd be throwing up with or without food. Patrice clasps her mother's hand, and Ruby responds with a squeeze. The two set hand in hand, and a nurse calls for the girl with the bloody arm. An empty cup sets on the floor where the old man had been setting. Mom, where did you go the time you left Dad and me a bunch of homemade frozen dinners? I went to see an old friend, dying of cancer. So why did you have to keep it a secret? Because you're so sensitive. I didn't think you'd understand. You're still the same way, you know. Your reactions are over the top. I remember the time you got nettles on your ankle walking through the woods. The way you screamed. It was as if you needed an amputation. Your father had a theory about your sensitivity. He said it was a result of your premature birth. I'm not so sure. Needless to say, we both did our best to shelter you from harm. But sometimes life just happens. Patrice gets up and fills two plastic cups with water from a dispenser. When she and her mother are finished drinking, she throws away the cups, along with the one left by the elderly man. By the way, Mom, why do you keep that old trumpet on the mantel? Are you still in love with the band leader who dumped you for his pregnant girlfriend? Ruby chuckles. He was the old friend I went to see when you were a kid. Died of colon cancer. No, I was not in love with him. Not when I went to see him or any time before. When he and I were an item, I was in love with the idea of playing trumpet in a band. So why didn't you continue? First of all, I wasn't that good. Then, when we were on tour in Kansas, we played a club that served alcohol illegally. At one time, Kansas was a dry state. Anyway, the club got raided. When we ran and the police fired shots, I was the last to get out of there. One of the shots ricocheted off the trumpet, which I was holding against my ribs. That 
was the end of my career in the music business. I keep the trumpet because it saved my life. And it reminds me of my wilder days, before Dad and you. Looking at it makes me feel young, a little irresponsible, the way Melanie Daniels was in The Birds. That's why I had a replica made of the jacket Tippi Hedren wore when her character drove all the way from San Francisco to Bodega Bay to play a practical joke on a man she liked. Patrice gives her mother a hug. Do you think Drift will pull through? I don't know. From what he's told me, the accident really messed him up. When it comes to his body, even a simple surgery is going to be a higher risk. Patrice takes a deep breath. Are you afraid to die? No, not at all. I'm more afraid of living, especially if things get bad for me. I won't let that happen. Ruby puts her arm around her daughter. Thanks for your reassurance, but I don't think it's up to you. Patrice kisses her mother on the cheek. The only thing keeping me here, says Ruby, is you. You know I never pestered you about not being able to have children, and I'm not sorry you couldn't. You have a wonderful career that might never have happened if things were different. And even though we got on each other's nerves, I can't imagine not being able to see you, talk to you, find out what's going on in your life. Patrice wipes the tears from her eyes and turns to face Ruby. You know, Mom, if Drift survives, it'll be the first time Guinevere saved Lancelot. You've just listened to The Caregiver by Kendall Clem. Welcome to the post-story portion of the podcast. I'm your co-host, Melissa, here with JW. Hello. We've got Kendall on the show today to discuss this touching piece and also to get to know the mind behind the work. Welcome, Kendall. Thank you. Um, it's great to be here. I'm honored to have been included uh, as part of Onyx, uh, where I love your, your motto, writing is creation, creation is life, life is a story. I think um, it's just absolutely fantastic, and I wanted to um, read that off and, and, and just express my um, jubilation. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that. I you love that. Well, your <laughs> jubilation, we are excited to have your jubilation on the show. Kendall is an award-winning fiction author former professional ballet dancer, journalist, and academic. His works have appeared in multiple literary publications, and we are very excited, maybe even jubilant, to have him <laughs> on the show today. So let's find out more. Who is Kendall Clem? Thank you. Well, I'm sort of a person who might be considered a jack-of-all-trades uh, in layman's terms. I am... I started out as a dancer, classical ballet, trained in New York, uh, moved there at the age of 16, uh, became professional, was injured, became, uh, went back to school, to college, uh, ended up with a degree in journalism, became a journalist, uh, reviewing dance and arts, writing feature articles as well as news articles, moved on to getting uh, an MFA in creative writing. 
and uh, then doing some adjunct work teaching and realizing that I just, there was so much more I needed to learn about writing, fiction writing, and uh, applied for a PhD uh, acceptance at the University of Wales, Aberystwyth is the pronunciation. Ah, very nice. (laughs) A-B-E-R-Y-S-T-W-Y-T-H. And uh, managed to get in with scholarship and graduated in 2010 and uh, 2011 uh, started teaching full-time at a university. Uh, Composition, literature, and creative writing. So a mixture. And so I feel like, um, so who I am is, is this sort of mixture of dancer. And I, I have a sort of um, definition for writing, Ooh, for, me, like for me at least. I say writing is an act of choreography performed in a liminal space in which multisensory experience occurs through the ingestion of words. Oh, mm, that's I like nice. It. Yeah. Liminal. That's a, not a word we hear a lot. Well, it's a threshold. And so this is, it, it's important to note that I, my, my views are quite different than those of some very popular theorists, writing theorists. So I believe that writing is embodied, that the words themselves are physical entities that we ingest with our eyes when we read. Mm-hmm. So this embodiment um, is the antithesis of semiotics, for example, um, to the extent that words are not symbols, and it is also the antithesis of uh, theorist, um, philosopher Roland Barthes, Frenchman, who says that the moment the words come onto the page, that they are detached from the writer, the author is dead. The author, I say, is living mm. within the uh, reader if the writing is good enough and there's always striving to make it better Um, and also that it's a dance it's a pas de deux or dance for two or duet Um, between the reader and the writer and it's like that up to the the writer to anticipate who the audience might be and then we get to kind of Henry James-related uh, classifications of audience that I won't go into. But it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's really a dance. I look at it as dance choreography, and I act out all my scenes, all my characters. No way. Fascinating, yeah. I love that. Huh. So do you, do you do that as you're writing it? I mean, I guess it's not really possible, but, or, or tell us more about that. Sometimes, yeah. I That's so why I need a quiet be. space where people around understand what's going on because if there's some <laughs> heated arguments, then uh, <laughs> you know, we don't want someone calling 911 right, right. Uh, because I'm acting out a scene. Oh, but uh, no, I, I sometimes will do it simultaneously because I, I experiment. Um, mm-hmm. For example, when I was writing about a car uh, dropping into water you know i had this sort of matchbox car that i'm dropping in the bathtub and taking (laughs) notes and and just experimenting acting out so the acting out is experimenting speaking also there's a musicality uh to Mm -hmm. writing i Mm -hmm. i look at you know poetics uh accents syllables uh rhyme if it occurs 
not necessarily because this is not verse, but I use techniques that poets would use and because I'm used to dancing to music. Mm-hmm. And so writing is, and no, I don't play music while I write, but I look at the actual words emanating on the page as a form of dance and, you know, that is accompanied by music. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, one of the questions we ask a little later usually, because we like to get into the piece, but I feel like this is a good time to ask it is, so all of that experience in understanding your body, being able to move your body, um, that impact of that visually for people, has that impacted the way you approach writing or you feel like your writing style? Is that maybe why you acted out? Like, I guess I just wanted to explore that connection between dance and writing. Yes, very much so. So I see it as a physical act. So that if you look at um, cognitive phenomenology, the idea of consciousness being incarnated, that it's called The Body and the Mind, is one of the books that I've read by Mark Johnson, um, in which everything is embodied so that when you are tapping into your imagination, there is physicality. I could be lying in the bathtub, which I sometimes do, where I get story (laughs) ideas with my eyes closed on a winter day when it's cold and nasty. And that's where it comes because I see that consciousness incarnated. I'm remembering various things that happened along with reliving the emotions and feelings attached to Hmm. my past. And it could be something that I've read So that that is, even though it's not a dance activity that you would see on stage, although there are moments of of, um, silence and uh, posing, Mm -hmm. I still see it as emanating from dance because it's the idea that there is a body in everything, um, that the imagination takes my old body from a day ago, 10 years ago, whenever, when I experienced such and such. Um, And it's sort of like when you think about, well, where were you during Mm 9-11 when it happened, when you first found out, and then you relive those physical feelings. Um, Did you not believe it? I didn't believe it at first when a friend called me. I said, no, this is, it's like possibly a joke. It's, uh, you know, and then how did I feel? And, and such. Um, hmm. And so it's that sort of thing that I Good. think we can all relate to. Yeah, I agree 100%. Well, I was actually going to say that you talking about acting out your story, I think that's such an interesting, I've never heard that before. And I think it's such an interesting way to do it because it's a, another way to experience exactly what your character is experiencing. And you get more into the story. So I have a YouTube channel with my daughter, who's five. And we do exactly that. We take these kids' books and then we act them out. And so we read and also act them out. So it it really speaks to me how you do this. But it does give you a whole nother view of the work. And of course, I didn't write those children's books, but I'm living them. And Mm. so I think that's fascinating. I think it puts you into your work in a whole new way. Well, thank you. And that's wonderful what you do with your daughter. I think that that's going to affect her positively for the rest of her life. 
I hope so. We have a lot of fun doing it, but I do love that you do that with your writing. I think it's so interesting and I can picture you in the room having arguments, acting <laughs> these things out and it's hysterical. I think that's Well, great. it's um it's sort of I am inspired by Charles Dickens who actually yeah. he used to stand in the mirror and make faces to develop his characters. Oh, I love that. <laughs> that is fascinating. Well, okay, so let's get into the story a little bit then. So yeah. this particular story, uh, I mean, it's it reads very true to life. To me, it did anyway. And Definitely. so does is there some reality in this? Is this based on some experience you've had, or is this purely uh, inspiration? It is most, it's really a combination. I will say that the, the plot itself is fictional. I made it up, but um, I did approach it with a goal. Um, and my, my work tends to be didactic. Uh, I do, I guess I'm old fashioned in that sense. There, there tend to be some morals and such in my <laughs> stories and not all stories have them, which is fine. It's great. But, um, I wanted to basically honor my super elderly parents. My parents waited an incredibly long time to have one child and I'm it. And <laughs> I started to notice how, as they got older and older, various people, businesses, doctors, offices, nurses, whatever, were not taking them as seriously. Uh. That, in other words, it was I saw it as elder abuse. Hmm. Um, not not to any extreme, mm -hmm. but it just it was a disrespect for one's elders. So I wrote this to honor my parents, hmm. and also. Um, I had to to deal over the past seven years with uh, hiring caregivers because my parents wanted to stay at home and not go into assisted living, and I chose to honor that. And it's private caregivers, and I'm managing all of that. And I was managing it while working at Kennesaw State full-time, mm -hmm. uh, teaching a 5-4 load as a lecturer of English and doing service. And... Um, running a household of my own and traveling up to Connecticut. And I mean, there was one time where I had to rush up uh, because my mother was in the hospital. And so it was this sort of, they're okay, they're not okay. One's in the hospital, another is. And it's interesting that this is um, appearing this month or um, in this fall, certainly, uh, because my father just passed earlier oh. this month. Oh, so okay, yeah. Um, at 93. Wow. And, yeah. And it's interesting. Yeah. My um, my gr one of my grandmothers was born in 1888. If each daughter had a child that I was descended from, um, daughter at 16, I would have been born in 1921, which would make me 100 years old now, <laughs> <laughs> which I am clearly not. But uh, but yeah, all these sort of generations that were skipped. So it was a desire to honor people. The bit of truth, um, I, I guess having older parents, I, I t when I was growing up, especially as a dancer, uh, which is certainly um, male dancer, that's outcast if you ever will get outcast, mm -hmm. um, yeah. no matter where, and, and, and still to this day, I believe, is the case, not so much perhaps as when I was a child, but um, I made friends with older adults. Mm -hmm. Those were yeah. my, they were nice to me, not like the other kids, and so... <laughs> yeah. When I joined uh, a company in the Midwest, I had a neighbor um, who was 60. I thought she was ancient. 
and um, <laughs> I was 20, and she would take me out to dinner. Uh, she had lost her husband, and um, I, whenever I tried to cook, I would just cause a smoke alarm. She lived above me to just go <laughs> off. And she said, oh, how about some, why don't we go out to dinner? And she, would t she told me this one story about how in the 1940s, she was part of a, a, a band, one of those you know traveling bands in the mm -hmm. state of Kansas, which was a dry state, and the police raided it, and she got shot at. Oh. Wow, that's in the story. And I yeah. thought, okay, well, you know, with issues of police now and, and such, I was inspired to incorporate that little anecdote. There was no trumpet. Mm -hmm. She played the sax, not the <laughs> trumpet. Um, that was made up. And also, I'm a gardener. And um, I almost sent you as a picture a uh, butternut squash I grew at my ah. parents this year that looks like the squash that I described. Right, right. Um, and the trump that related to the trumpet, yeah. So yeah. did you get the squash before you wrote the story, no. or did it come after? It came okay. after. That which is, is really excellent. Bizarre. Yes, ah, I had heard you talking. So yeah, I mean, it's my. I love gardening. I've gardened for my parents in Connecticut every summer for more than ten years, and it's become a tradition. And I'm good at it. And so all these things sort of coming together, and but the story of. Um, you know, students, I've worked with a lot of people who are, uh, try to um, get internships for students. I had an internship. So it's sort of bringing it all together and creating mm -hmm. a story. And I've been to the, I love to bake. And in 2010, no, actually it was early 2011, I went to the King Arthur Flower Company with oh. some friends <laughs> and just went wild with extracts and various things um, <laughs> that I couldn't find anywhere else. And I bought the Queen Guinevere. And then I found out when I was writing this story, I found out that it doesn't exist anymore. I thought, what am I going to do with that? So I put right. that into the story. <laughs> That's Excellent. great. No, that is terrific. What a perfect example yeah. of um, observation and life experience becoming inspiration into a story. I think that's really cool. Yes, all those pieces coming together mm -hmm. yeah. to create yeah. this, this piece. Yeah, and I really like the garden scene, in particular when you start off. I mean, I think you describe that process and the vegetables really well, and that's not an easy thing to do. It's not. I felt like I was holding that in my, my own hands. I could see the dirt, you know, everything. You did a really good job putting someone in that space. Thank yeah. you. Good. Um, and it's interesting because when I wrote the story, that summer... Well, the summer after, I wrote the story, not in, not in the summer, but um, I was remembering the garden in the summer, and the, that section of the garden that was fenced in is not where I had the butternut squash. I had it in another area. And then this year, I planted them in this area, and so it was, you know, I made the images in my mind that were fictional come true by putting the squash where I put it in the story. Yeah, <laughs> more of your acting out. Yeah, that's kind of so. true. Yeah, well, well, at least hopefully the characters don't come to life and haunt you like they do in one of Stephen King's books. <laughs> <laughs> and he writes himself into his book and he runs away from one of the characters. It's hilarious. But anyway. Oh, um, I need to read Stephen King. Yeah. Okay, so your writing career is um, really varied. Do you have a subject, you know, that you like to focus on in particular? Well, I do have Step Lightly. Uh, 
my collection of dance stories, which won the Tart First Fiction Award. So that's my that's my first um, published book, and I do. Even since that time, I tend to dance somehow manages to creep in. Mm -hmm. uh, dance, baking, cooking, food, uh, <laughs> historic Queen Anne Victorian houses, which one day I will hope to own if I can <laughs> ever afford it, uh, something to restore or um, decorate or whatever um, with wraparound porches and... Um, yeah, that's sort of a dream of mine. So that's, I really enjoy writing about historic architecture, mm. although I have to do a lot of research every time I do because I don't feel like my knowledge is adequate. Mm -hmm. uh, nature, yeah. outdoors, I'm a hiker. I am, what I was, to, what I, what got me into my um, MFA, according to one uh, professor, was my choice of odd settings. Um, I'm a spelunker. I oh, cave what? crawl. What don't you do? Yeah. I cave crawl. And so, you know, um, where you are in Tennessee is one of the cave states. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have crawled Tennessee, Kentucky, Missouri. Um, and the idea that things exist, organisms that are so bizarre and unusual, um, intrigues me that live in caves because they don't need to see mm -hmm. yeah um they where the eyes are just sort of an area of skin on certain salamanders and i find that really really interesting that you know maybe i can come up with some sort of entity a little bit of speculative slash science fiction or something uh that comes out of a cave that sounds great cool a very very varied in everything that you do here. Another thing that struck me as interesting is obituary writing. So in your, I know in, in your um, biography that you sent to us, kind of learning about you, you use recipes, obituary writing, things like that within your fiction. Tell yeah, us a little bit yes. about that. And especially well, the obituaries. What are you doing with these obituaries? This genre or form is called formalist writing. You take one form of writing and turn it into fiction. Okay. Another. And so with the obituary, I mean, the bread and butter of print journalists at newspapers, the first thing you write, the obituaries. That's, okay. that's when, when you go on the bottom of the totem pole <laughs> as a reporter for a newspaper, you get to do the obituaries. Okay. Um, and some of them are just, I mean, it's, it's a formula. And, mm. and it made me really think about... Life, is it all just about where you worked, who your parents are, where you lived, who your children are, what organizations you were part of? Um, is that all there is to life? And so I created a 45, and so I started looking on Legacy.com and various newspapers and such and reading them just incredibly uniform mm -hmm. so hmm. that the, the soul is missing, in my opinion. Uh. So I created one that is absolutely that, and then I used, inspired by um, now retired uh, Alabama creative writing professor from Tuscaloosa, originally from Indiana, Michael Martone, has written stories in which most of the stories are endnotes or footnotes, so that my the story itself, the obituary is 45 words, and then I've got a little one, and and then a two, and then a three, by the name, by the name of the child, that really shows the relationships, what who the person really is, 
both good and bad, the trouble he got into when he was uh, arrested, uh, how he um, stood up for uh, poor people, the hungry, hmm. uh, the library, volunteering for the library, the relationship he had, the, the relationship his parents and children didn't approve of because it was a mixed-race relationship, because it was not a heterosexual relationship. All these things come out in the story, which you would never see in an obituary. Oh, of course mm -hmm. not, yeah. And that's sort of my rebellion, I guess, against the form and against taking the soul out of the person. It's my way of embodying an obituary and creating something that uh, is what I consider meaningful. That one first prize for the 2020 didn't come out till this year friction fiction contest and <laughs> you can read that online that's cool that oh, so great neat. i suggest our readers do that yeah so the story is within the footnotes below the obituary yes i love that and then there's so also neat. you know how online you you can um you know on legacy.com you can go and comment and talk about and so the comments are even censored uh you know, and so then I have the relationships of the friends and the uh, former student oops. of this person and so on. So, uh, yeah, it's just really cool. It, it was lots of fun. Um, I didn't know how it was going to turn out, but I felt like it was inspired after I lost a close friend. And this close friend was the person who said, yes, go back and get your Ph.D. The MFA, it's not oh, enough. Yes, it's okay. a terminal degree, but I want more. And he was doing his PhD in um, the United Kingdom as well. He said, yeah, go for it. Hmm. It's going to be yeah. a completely different experience. And so I felt like I wanted to honor him through a character similar by writing this story. That's great. That's Especially great. since he passed um, from pancreatic cancer mm. a couple of years ago. Yeah. So. Rich, this is all so rich. I know. It's fascinating. It is. <laughs> I, I really think that's interesting about the obituary. Yeah. So how do you, how difficult do you find it to write? Is it just something like you sit down and it happens? Or you have to definitely make a space for it, obviously, because you don't want to go to a coffee shop and start yelling at yourself. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't write a word in a coffee shop. Um, oh, yeah? So, yeah, it's just not for me. Um, I Yeah, that just doesn't happen. I, you When you gave me that question... Um, in your prompt, you, you had a one through 10, and my answer is one, two, three, four, five, six, <laughs> seven, eight, nine, and 10. It depends. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that sometimes it's not the, the early moments of a story can be a 10. The one that I've been working on, I just, I ditched it four times yeah. before mm -hmm. I figured out what the story was about. Revision can be so pleasurable that it can run from a two to a six to an eight. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's just, it's all over the map. Yeah. But I do, I mean, I t having taught English composition, first year composition, one and two, and taught revision for so many years now that, I mean, I'm a true believer that it is such an integral part of writing that the fact that we get to do that. And when I was a dancer, I didn't get to revise. If I messed up mm -hmm. on stage, 
that you can still see that on video from when <laughs> right, he was right. dancing. You oh, can't go look. back and erase he out of on people's his minds. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. And so it's just such a joy to be able to have that opportunity in writing that I relish it, um, and it makes it easier. Yeah, That's great. Well, that's a wonderful perspective, and I think you know, the writers listening ought to take, really consider that because it is, you know, that's true. It's an opportunity. It's a gift to be able to do that, which normal, normally writers hate that. You know, it's the worst part yeah. about writing in some ways. Right. Depends. So what do you like to read? Are you reading anything right now? Yes. Yes, I am. Um, I tend to read a mixture of uh, texts. So I'm reading uh, Wild Mind by Goldberg, which is, and I'm rereading it. I mean, I've been reading that for two years now, and it's not a long book. <laughs> I reread sections because it's, um, Wild Mind is about the writer's life, about getting about getting story ideas really becoming uh, a professional writer and i feel like even though i am i have to reread um that text i'm reading pulitzer prize winning one of our own by my favorite american author willa cather uh midwestern since i moved to the midwest when i was 20 and i orient myself very much so to Kind of where the Midwest and the South meet, I was in Kansas City, uh, Kansas and Missouri are kind of that mixture. Um, in terms of culture, mm-hmm. that's where I sort of stand. And um, I feel that the prairie is an unsung ecosystem. It, it's ignored. Even environmentalists sort of, yeah, well, put some houses up. Not the environmentalists, but it, it's, it's, you don't have the Sierra Club going and doing trips through prairies. You just don't. Um, The the support is not there. And so her work uh, is just absolutely magnificent. Mm. I am reading, um, it's part of a series called Dear Canada. It's diaries of, it's internment diaries from World War I. And this one is from uh, Anna Solnyuk, a Ukrainian child whose family, basically, they, they were recruited to come to Canada as immigrants pre-World War One, and when they arrived, being of... Um, and this is really, really interesting nowadays, I think. They were, because of how they looked, they were sent to internment camps. Wow. Blonde, blue-eyed people in World War One were all considered Germans. They were the enemy in Canada, and they were sent to these camps and had to do work. Wild. Fascinating. That is. You never know what we're going to learn on these interviews, I tell you. <laughs> I know. Thank you, Kendall. <laughs> no, we've spanned the, spanned the globe of talking about topics here. Speaking of which, though, we are already uh, up on our 30 minutes or so. Um, you know, one of the questions that we ask last is for you as an experienced writer, a published writer, an award-winning writer, you know, to give advice to any writers out there that are aspiring writers or even readers that are just curious. So tell us what's your, uh, what's your thoughts. Okay, I would say um, you're never off duty. You're uh, never off the hook. Like Everything, that. even when you're sleeping, your dreams <laughs> could turn right. into stories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay, carry pen and paper, uh, your notes section on your phone, whatever it may be so that these ideas don't get lost in the midst of your day. If you work at McDonald's through the drive-thru, yeah. mm-hmm. your life is rich in that 
all of the observations People. that yeah. you experience. Mm -hmm. What's it, what, what's what's in that car? Who's mm -hmm. with the person? Is there a dog in the car? What kind of a dog? Um, yeah. All of these things will feed your writing so that if you feel like, oh, I don't have time for writing, you're always writing if you're observing. Mm -hmm. yes. yes, you need to make time to sit in front of a computer, keyboard, pen and paper, so on. But this is pre-writing, I, I think, is something that, and getting story ideas, that's more than half the battle. Oh, definitely. Yeah, agree. Wow. I think that's great advice. And something I noticed when I started writing, I, somebody would be telling me a story, you know, and I so, would half be, you know, just half listen, you know, if something's like, oh, this is, doesn't sound like it's that exciting. And then I'm thinking, no, I need to be paying attention to exactly what they're saying, taking it in, taking in the way they tell the story, you know, their mannerisms, everything can be part of how you construct your, your stories. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's great advice. Yeah, that's terrific. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, that'll do it for the show. Um, Kendall, thank you so much for yes. coming on the show and submitting your work. We're so excited to have it in Etched Onyx and on Onyx Publications. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If so, please help us spread the word by telling your friends or giving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Those reviews really make a difference. We'd like to thank the folks at Literature and Latte, the makers of Scrivener, for sponsoring the podcast and providing an amazing tool for writers. If you'd like to take your writing to the next level and use a tool designed for writers by writers, then give Scrivener a try. What have you got to lose? The Story Discovery Podcast is a free, narrated podcast of the works that appear in Etched Onyx magazine. Edited by J.W. McAteer, all stories and poems are available for free at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you'd like to support the continuation of this podcast and or the magazine, please consider a small donation through Patreon at patreon.com slash onyxpublications. As a nano publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story or poem for consideration, please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.